a revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm the host of Yoga Birth Babies, and today I went into our archives and I pulled out one of our most listened to and really one of my favorite podcasts. I speak with Dr. Tracy Agnesis, and she talks about the scary things newborns do that are totally normal. I love this podcast for so many reasons because I remember when I was a new parent, and I had already been in the birthing world for like 10 years, and some of the things my baby was doing really freaked me out. So she talks about everything from what's normal sleep habits, what's normal pooping, what kind of sounds they make, and just normalizing some of these bizarre habits that could really freak you out. So I think you're going to enjoy that because if we can make this ease into parenthood a little less stressful, why not do that? But before we get to that conversation, I just want to remind you to go to our website, prenatalyogacenter.com and grab your cheat sheet, five simple solutions to the most common pregnancy aches and pains. And these can be great for postpartum too. It's not just pregnancy. And it's perfect for the days that you can't make it to class. You might have a few little creaks and cricks in your body that you want to work out and we got you covered. We also have been, we sent a survey out to our community and we asked, okay, we know that throughout this pandemic, you have been with us in on Zoom in the classroom online, but what are your intentions and what would you like once the world starts to open and we had a resounding keep the classes online. So we saw, we heard, we listened, we're doing it. So we are bringing back live in-person classes in the studio, which is incredibly exciting and exhilarating as a teacher, but we're keeping them online as well. And that is just our promise going forth. So some classes will be live just in person, some will be hybrid in person online, and some will just be online. So we're going to continue to stick with you and help support you throughout your pregnancy and postpartum. And then a reminder, people have been saying, what are you going to be doing about teacher training? So here's our plan. The early fall one's already full, but there's still space in November and December. So we're going to do that online. And then our plan is to be back in person for the winter. We're going to be in Washington, D.C. for January and February. And then I'm incredibly excited to say that in March and April, as of now, we're planning on being back in person in New York City. So if you're a yoga teacher or someone who just wants to deepen their knowledge of prenatal yoga and you want to take our very comprehensive training. Check it out again at prenatalyogacenter.com. Now here is a big announcement. 
that I'm incredibly excited to share. We are partnering with Boober. It's an amazing company. I have known the founder for almost 20 years. I know, Boober, don't you love the name? (laughs) I do. So if you're looking for a birth or postpartum doula or lactation consultant, classes, physical therapist, mental health expert, really anything related to birth and pregnancy and postpartum, check out Boober, getboober.com. Boober can help. And you will get 10% off your first services with the code PYC. So anything that you are looking for support during pregnancy, postpartum, all of that, we got you covered at getboober.com, code PYC. Okay, we're going to take a super quick break and we come back. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ignisis. A revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high resolution video and clear two way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo's Signal Extraction Technology, or set to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo set as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, Tracy. How are you? Hi, good. Thanks so much for having me today. Oh, I am so excited to talk to you. And I love that you approached me with an amazing topic, scary things that newborns do that new parents should know are normal. Because I remember have, holding a brand new baby before I was even a parent. And I'm like, this is weird. And then even after having my own, there were some things I just didn't know. And I'd been a doula for almost a decade. And there are still some things that that surprised me. So I think we're going to have a really great conversation diving in. But I guess before we do that, why don't we hear a little bit about you and what drew you to pediatrics? And you were just telling me before we get started, you just got your IBCLC. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Um, so I, I think I always wanted to be a pediatrician. I remember going to garage sales with my mom, like buying stuffed animals that I would put in my office one day, but I didn't <laughs> even really knew what that meant. Right. But I, it's something I wanted to do. Uh, I actually took a little bit uh, of a break in college. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go straight to med school. But then I, I realized that is what I wanted to do. So I did my medical school at SUNY Downstate in Brooklyn, and I did my um, pediatrics residency at NYU. But, you know, during um, medical school, I realized um, that I, I thought I wanted to be an OB, actually, at first. And I realized I didn't want to be a surgeon. And I was more interested in the baby when the baby came out. Um, and so then pedi- I just fell in love with pediatrics. So um, I went into that. And now I'm in a private practice um, in the city on the Upper West Side. I've been practicing pediatrics for um, 10 years. And I love it. I love it. And the fact that you also committed to get your, uh, your lactation consultant, IBCLC, that is a huge commitment. I know how many hours that is, but it's also, it's so great to have a different eye than yeah. the pediatrician, like knowing what to look for in breastfeeding and problems and problem solving. That is so, such a great gift to the parent that comes in with their new baby. 
Yeah. And I think it started because I, you know, I'm a pediatrician and I thought when I had my first baby that, you know, I'd be fine and it's all going to be okay. And similar, you know, to sounds like your experience, you know, I had this baby and there was so much about being the mom that I just wasn't expecting and prepared for, even with all my medical training, you know, and how, how hard it was. And breastfeeding was one of those things that I had a really hard time with. So, um, I am happy to be able to help, you know, my, my patients with that now. It's so great. I love hearing that. All right. So let's start the first thing I want to start with. So when I did my prenatal training, which is literally 20 years ago, I had never really been around like new, new, new littles. And I remember holding this baby and all of a sudden there was like this mustard seed looking liquid on me and everyone laughed and I laughed and I didn't know what that was. And then they later told me that's poop. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So let's I had no idea. So let's talk about baby poop. Yeah. <laughs> what is, uh, yes. What's normal? How much? How often? Go. Yeah. Yeah. So poop is something that we talk a lot about in pediatrics, especially in the beginning there. And people are always so surprised as to what's normal for a baby poop. It is not like adult poop at all. Right. So Clearly. <laughs> um, they poop a lot, a lot, a lot. So at, once the baby poops out that dark, thick, you know, tarry meconium in those, you know, the first day or two of life, you know, after that, then the baby starts getting actual, um, you know, milk in, then the poops become so many different colors. There's such a wide range. I actually like to tell my patients that it can be various colors of the tree that are normal. Yellow, orange, brown, green, uh, mustardy. That mustard seed is a very classic uh, breastfed baby poop, you know, and um, they um, they are liquidy. The poops are really liquidy. Like what you would call diarrhea for an adult is normal baby poop. It's really liquidy, you know, and the consistency could change day to day um, and be a little, you know, thicker. Formula fed babies are a little thicker, maybe a little darker, you know, um, but if the poop poop is a lot and it's a lot too. It's like, you know, they're feeding a lot and they're pooping a lot. So it could be up to eight to 10 poops a day in the beginning, you know, when they are um, um, starting to, to grow. And it can travel up their back. And it can travel up their backs for sure. It could travel up their backs. And um, some things that poop should not be though is, you know, red, like you wouldn't, um, if you think you see blood in the poop, that would be reason to call your doctor or truly black or truly white, which are very rare, but those would be things to call your doctor about or Consistently, like mucusy and snotty, like it looks like you blew your nose in the baby's diaper. That would be reason to check in. Um, but um, but it can be so many different things. And and babe, and not all babies poop that much though either. You know, sometimes babies have um, a few days in between poops. So once your baby's back to birth weight and you know is growing okay, um, if you if the baby holds on to the poop and kind of holds on to all the nutrients that that he or she needs to grow and then lets out a poop after a few days, as long as it's that soft poop, um, then it, it's okay. Well, that also brings me up to, so that's baby poop. And this could be, you said up to eight, 10 times a day or every couple of days, but what <laughs> about wet diapers? How often <laughs> should people be keeping an eye on that and how, how many a day? Sure, sure. So in the beginning, um, the rule is generally on day one of life, like, so that's within the first 24 hours, you want one PP diaper. On day two, you want two. Day three, you want three. Day four, you want four. Day five, you want five. And then after that, babies are having like a few, five, six or more PP diapers a day. Um, and that's normal. Parents always ask, uh, the question, well, you know, how to count poops and peas and all that. And I usually try to reassure them that as long as stuff is coming out, like that's what we want and that's a good sign. So if that diaper is so wet, 
wet and mixed up and there's poop in there, but the diaper, but the strip is blue and you're like, well, did it turn P2? I mean, you can count that because it's really just we're counting what comes out, you know? Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. I yeah. remember people asking me about that and I just was in such a daze. I'm like, I don't remember, but I know there was a change. And yeah, my midwife and my pediatrician is asking for numbers and I'm like, oh, there's so much to think about. Let's also talk about feeds because I felt like in the beginning, my boobs were just out constantly. I was just felt like I was never stopping the feeding. Mm -hmm. What's normal? What's to be expected? Yeah. So that is really normal. So in the beginning, um, you know, in those, in that first month, like eight to 12 feeds a day is normal for, um, for babies. And it's a few reasons. One, their tummies are so small that, um, they just can't hold on to a lot at one time. So they need to feed frequently. Um, and then, you know, in the first few weeks too, you're establishing your feeding supply. If you're breastfeeding, your body is, it's a supply and demand thing. So the baby initially, when you're not making that much, it's it, your baby feeding on you is stimulating you, your brain to make the milk. So it's a process of, you know, creating the milk. So, um, so it's all, it's a lot and it's, it's a lot. And they feed when we count feeds, this is always important too. And it's a question, um, that people ask a lot is you count from the beginning of one feed to the beginning of the next feed, oh, right? It's like a contraction. So, the beginning yeah, to exactly. beginning. Yeah. <laughs> the beginning to the beginning. So if you're doing that and you're feeding on each breast, you know, for whatever, 15, 20 minutes and the baby poops in the middle or you're burping and, you know, um, it, it takes a long time. And then by the time it's basically every two to three hours from the beginning to the beginning, by the time you're like done and you think you're good, it's really soon uh, till until the next feed. So it's a lot in the beginning. It is. Yeah. I just remember feeling the first month or so was relentless. I'm like, oh my God, well, I get out of my apartment. And it took a lot because every time we were done feeding, Feeding, I felt like we had a tiny break and then we were back there or a nap mm -hmm. or something. So I also want to keep talking a little bit about, cause I know feeding gets people anxious and you mentioned, um, the baby's birth weight and getting back to the baby's birth weight. Can you talk about how normal it is? Cause babies do lose a little weight after birth, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, sure. I could talk about that. So most babies lose, you know, weight in the beginning and we expect that. So, um, babies will lose, we kind of allow them to lose up to 10% of their birth weight. Um, so they go home from the hospital and then they might even lose a little more after they go home from the hospital. We like to see them starting to gain weight again, usually between days three and five. And usually that coincides with when um, the breast milk supply starts getting more as well. So then the baby's actually starting to get in. And and the the weight loss, you know, has a few different reasons. It's like fluid shifts from the um from the you know birth and um also they're not taking that much in, but that's okay. You know, we expect that. So that's why those wet diaper requirements in the beginning are not as much as they are after three to five days. Um, and then we like to see them get back to their birth weight by about two weeks. So here's a question also, and this came up because in teacher training, we were talking about this. So if someone is having, if a parent has chosen epidural, they're going to have continuous IV fluid. And can't that then bulk up the baby's weight more artificially because they're getting continuous fluid? Is that taken in consideration when we're concerned about the loss of birth weight? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that is something that as a lactation consultant, I feel like I got more, you know, of understanding of that with that process. Um, because the, that fluid does, um, you know, translate to the baby. So, um, that is part of that up to 10%. Once you're getting to 10%, though, you know, I think that, um, you're, you're getting, that's our borderline as far as, you know, if there were fluids or not, you know, um, it's still a little much, but we don't take any one particular thing, you know, as pediatricians and, 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 um, say what to do based on that. It's usually a bunch of things. So it's the percent weight loss as well as the mom's milk. If, if she's, you know, if that's in and also those wet diapers, those peas and those poops that also goes into the consideration of if it's too much or not. Oh, that's really helpful. Thank you. All right. Yeah. I want to talk about baby's breathing patterns because I remember literally Googling me like <laughs> irregular breathing. I thought he was like hyperventilating. <laughs> I didn't understand. So babies, is it normal that they have irregular breathing patterns? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So there's a few things about their breathing patterns and their rates, right? So, um, first of all, they breathe faster than adults. The normal yeah, rest. I do. I'm terrified. Yeah. I'm like, they, they breathe faster. Their, their normal respiratory rate of an adult is, is about 20. And that's how many breaths per minute that a normal adult takes. Um, and newborns, it can be anywhere from 30 to 60. So their rate is just faster in general, but they also have this very irregular breathing pattern. So in adults, when we are calculating the respiratory rate, we can look at an adult and watch over 15 seconds. And whatever that number is, we can multiply by four because that's a minute, right? And we can get the respiratory rate. You cannot do that in babies because they have such an irregular breathing pattern that you actually have to count for a full minute. Um, and so when I say irregular, it and it'll be like, they'll be like... <laughs> And so they go in and out of this fast, slow breathing. So I always tell new parents, if you are concerned that your baby's breathing too fast, you do want to look at your watch and and look over a full minute. If they have a sustained, really fast breath for a full minute, that might be a concern. Um, and also, you know, look at the way, look at their chest and their belly when they're breathing. You know, if they are sucking in their ribs and their belly's like seesawing in and out, you know, that's a concern. You know, that's not normal. Um, but this, you know, in and out of a little huff and puff what is not normal for an adult is normal for a newborn. I think that's really helpful. And I like the tips you gave about looking at their belly, not mm -hmm. just the breathing. Ooh, these are such good tips. Mm -hmm. All right. We're going to we're gonna take a super quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a conversation every parent has, and it's all about sleep. We'll be right back. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Okay, 
We are back. Oh, such a big topic with new parents. It is, I'm constantly hearing people say, oh, my baby slept through the night or my baby didn't sleep through the night. When did your baby start to sleep? How many hours? So, wow, this is a huge can of worms. So let's go sleep. What is normal realm for a newborn? What are the expectations? What is actually sleeping through the night? And then also, let's throw this out there. As an IBCLC, can you talk about do Bottle-fed babies sleep longer than breastfed. I heard that rumor moving around too. <laughs> Maybe yeah, sure. I'll try this. to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If I uh, don't hit them all, let me know. But uh, okay. we'll start with the first. Okay, so normal newborn sleep in the beginning is um, they sleep a lot. They can sleep 16, 18, maybe even up to 20 hours a day in a 24-hour period wow. um, in the beginning. And that's usually for like the first two weeks. They're really sleepy. Um, and so that becomes hard um, to feed the baby because we said how often they feed. And so a lot of new parents are just like, I can't feed the baby. The baby's so sleepy, you know, and you try and there's some tricks and things you can try. You know, but generally around two weeks of age, the babies wake up a bit and it does become um, a little bit easier. Um, but that sleep is, you know, not very consolidated. You know, it's little bits here and there. So um, you are not, you know, um, there, you, between feeding and sleeping and, you know, you're, you're, a hot mess. You are up a lot, even though that baby's <laughs> sleeping 20, you know, 18 hours a day. You're not, <laughs> you don't have that amount of time. So they sleep a lot. Okay. And so then what about when, and then they, I remember thinking like, Oh, our baby's so awesome. I don't know what this whole, everyone's, everyone's talking about you don't sleep. And then, and then that changes though, after about two weeks. So it changes. And then what's the expectation of, of what happens after that? So I feel like it was every four, every six hours, sometimes every three hours, were we just not sure we, we probably had no idea what we were doing. What, What's the expectation after those two weeks? Yeah, so that so babies have they don't have their own circadian rhythm for a little while for at least the first six to eight weeks, right? So um, when the baby's in the mom's belly, they follow the circadian rhythm of the mom, and that circadian rhythm is your you know your clock, your inner bio, you know clock as far as day and night. And so um, when they're born, they just don't have that, and so a lot of them you know have it reversed, and they you know are party animals up all night because they just don't have that normal circadian rhythm. By six to eight weeks, it's starting to be established, you know, a little more where they can know days and nights and, and get it right. Um, but as they still have really small tummies, you know, so they're still needing to feed often, you know, usually they can go, you know, a few stretches of longer and, you know, hopefully that that's at night. So maybe that's three, four hours, maybe longer. Some babies do, you know, longer than that, four or five hours. And you might get one or two of those stretches, you know, in those, um, in that first, you know, month or two of life. Um, and that, you know, and the, and that would be, and that would be great. And that's totally fine. Usually we say once the baby's back up to the birth weight, you know, you let them sleep at night, you don't have to wake them up to feed. And if you get a long stretch, that's great, you know? Um, and, and then as far as sleeping through the night, I like to say that, um, no one really, even adults sleeps through the night, right? So we all, we all wake up a little bit and we put ourselves back to sleep. You know, we, we fluff our pillow, we turn to the side, we rub our eyes, we do whatever, and we go back to sleep. Um, and babies do that too. So uh, as more, as, as opposed to sleeping through the night, I like to think of it more as like a, uh, them learning the ability to be able to soothe themselves back to sleep when they do wake up. Because I think part of the, a, a lot of the confusion and, you know, um, uh, people being, you know, upset or feeling like they're not doing what their neighbors are doing around sleep, I think is in the expectation 
expectations, you know? So if you expect that that's a normal thing, um, it, it's a little easier to digest, you know? And so babies can start to self-soothe a little um, themselves around four months is when they can start to be expected to do that, you know? Um, so there's a lot of, you know, tips and tricks and things you can try to do, you know, early on or to try to get them to be able to have that self-soothing ability, you know? And even then, once it's that time, it's not through the night necessarily, you know, like a full 10, 12 hours, you know, maybe they're going more like six, eight hours as uh, sleeping through the night without, you know, waking up to, to feed or um, disrupting themselves too much. When does that nighttime feed typically drop? Because I kept it for both my kids, maybe too long. I did it like a year where I would trudge in and feed them and trudge. It got less, but I still had at least one feed for up to a year. Maybe I just had bad boundaries. No, there's so much variation in this. You know, there's just so much variation as far as what people do. You know, it's, there's no one right answer to this. You know, a lot of, um, a lot of people do keep that feed through, you know, the first, you know, six, nine months, a year and longer, you know, and I always, it's really more of a conversation with the family. I like to say, like, what are, what are your goals? You know, because when you talk to people, you realize, you know, sometimes a working mom who, you know, isn't home with her baby all day actually really you know, feels good about that middle of the night feeding, like if it's just one time and that's something that keeps up her supply and allows her to be able to feed her baby when she's, you know, at work all day, you know, so, so it's a conversation around what people's, you know, goals are and what works for their family. That makes a lot of sense. But also let's talk about, we know, we hear often about back is best, but I also noticed that some babies kind of slipped themselves on their side. Is that dangerous? Is that okay? Do we push them back onto their back? No, let them be. Let them be. Yeah, that's a real, it's a super common question too. So babies sleep is also different, is different from adult sleep in that they spend a lot more of their time in sleep in what we call the REM, the rapid eye movement sleep, right? So it's very active sleep. Um, and, uh, they spend more time in that active sleep and their sleep, their REM is more active than adults. Um, so therefore they're really noisy sleepers. Some babies grunt, they cry in their sleep, you know, and they move around a lot. And so that's part of why they are maybe turning to their side a little bit. It's just their really active sleep. And um, one of the things that I try to tell new parents early on is, you know, if your baby is doing those things really noisy or, you know, moving around, you don't, I think most people's reaction is to like jump up and like go get that baby, you know, but give it a minute because um, your baby might just still be sleeping, you know, and see if your baby is actually just sleeping. Um, but if they do turn to their side, as long as you have a safe uh, place that your baby is sleeping in so that there's no, you know, bumpers, that there's no loose um, blankets and that the, um, that the, you know, there's nothing too soft, you know, that's a firm mattress and that it's a safe environment. Then if your baby turns to the side, that is totally fine. You do not have to move the baby or do anything. Push the baby back over. Get yeah. on your back. Get on your back. But what about babies that are constantly on their back? Do they get a weird shaped head? Is that, yeah. po- is that possible? Oh yeah, yeah. It's possible. There, there's definitely, um, more of the flat head, um, since we've had, you, you know, the back to sleep campaign than before, for sure. That is definitely a, a side effect of it. Um, but, you know, we do know the babies are much, much, much safer on their backs for sleep. So the So rate, what do you uh, do yeah. about the flat yeah. head situation? Yeah, yeah. So, um, they, as much tummy time as you can do during the day while the baby's awake is, 
the most important thing. So whenever that baby's awake and alert, you should have the baby on his or her tummy. And that is really, really good, um, for the, you know, to prevent the back of the head and also not, you know, having the baby lay in, um, other, you know, kind of carriers on the back during the day. So, um, um, that, that's the best thing that you can do for it. And then once babies start to roll over, you know, from front to back, back to front and be able to sit up, you know, closer to four to six months, then they're spending less time laying on their back. And so that flat head um, starts to improve. Does it, so it does improve on its own. Cause I'm thinking my kids don't have flat heads and I don't remember what I did, but they don't have flat heads. So it does on its own start to kind of pop out, I guess. It, does. it definitely does get better, but there are certainly times where, you know, the pediatrician will intervene or recommend somebody intervene if it is too flat. The things I mostly look for are um, to see if the baby's head is too flat is asymmetry in the face, right? So, and in the oh. ear position. So if you're looking at a baby from the front and you can see any sort of facial asymmetry because of the um, flatness in the back of the head, then that would be somebody I would refer. Um, and the same thing with the ear position, you know, if one is pushed a little forward or back a little, um, then that would be, um, that would be a reason to is refer. Is it usually it. an underlying problem like torticollis, like the neck has a problem and therefore that head is always in that same position? It can be. Um, it can be. Um, it can. Mo- a lot of babies do have a little bit of that torticollis, that kind of, um, um, you know, muscle that, yeah, the muscle that's a little tighter on one side than the other. Sometimes maybe from the positioning in the womb or something that they just have a preference for, you know, um, afterwards. Um, so if that, if it isn't to that one side, um, there are certainly exercises, you know, that can be done from either your pediatrician or a physical therapist um, to, you know, move those neck muscles around around, um, loosen them up a bit so that the baby, um, you know, moves more like a 360 degree, uh, you know, side to side equally. Yeah. This is, I love hearing, (laughs) I love going into like the weird little things that we, (laughs) that are kind of off the beaten path and here. Okay. So here's another one. So, okay. Cradle cap. My daughter had it for ever. And a lot of body hair when she was first. Both of them look like little, little, little monkeys, little. <laughs> so what about, oh, and baby pimples and peeling skin, all of these things that you're like, huh, you're not as cute in these baby pictures yeah. as I would have thought. So what do you do about that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, okay. So cradle cap, we could start there. So okay. cradle cap is, um, you know, these greasy looking yellow scales yeah, that babies it get. Kind of gross. Yeah, it is. It's kind of gross. And it's, it's like, it can be on their scalp, which is the cap part of it, but it can also be on their face. It can be behind their ears, on their ears. Sometimes they get it on their bodies. Um, and then usually the skin underneath that greasy yellow scale is a little redder too. Um, um, and what it is, is that grease is coming from the sebaceous glands, which are the oil producing glands in the skin. Um, and it's, it's not a disease. It's not a problem. You know, it actually is the same, um, underlying pathophysiology and medical term of, of dandruff in teenagers and adults. It's really the same thing. What causes it exactly? Um, you know, we don't know exactly. There's probably a few different components that some of it ha- might have to do with hormones from the mom and the baby, or there can be some like fungal component to it as well. Um, but it it's common. It's usually like around two to three weeks of age and then through the first year, you know, but it peaks around maybe three months of age. Um, and what I'd like to recommend is that you just use an emollient, like, a, you know, a, a, an ointment, um, 
a emollient, like a Vaseline or something, and you just like keep it on or you can even use like a baby oil or something like that, um, or really any oils, you know, you leave it on and that'll loosen up the scales. Um, and then you can use a fine tooth comb to comb out all those loose scales. Um, but it's not something that gets taken care of after one time of that. It's something that you do, you know, it's a, a few, commitment. Uh, I remember yeah, exactly. doing that. Yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Okay, then what is, that's cradle cap, but what about the baby pimples? Yeah, so baby pimples, um, which uh, used to be called a neonatal acne, so that's around like three weeks of age. It's pretty common. I think it's like 20% or so. It's pretty common in babies. And that's where you see these pimples like on their cheeks and on their scalp, um, could be too. Um, and really it's, it's, it's mild, you know, it, you don't really do anything about it. You don't put emollients on. You don't put anything on. You really just you don't pop them. <laughs> yeah, you don't pop them. <laughs> you don't, you know, um, you don't give them medicines really. Very rarely would anybody do that. You know, you just like use a very gentle soap and water and really you avoid extra oils and lotions and stuff like that. You know, so, um, and usually by around like four months of age, it gets better. Um, and that's actually different than a different acne, which is infantile acne, which then is much less common and starts around four months of age. And that's more severe and that's really more like bad teenage acne that might have to do with hormones so that is different but the 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 newborn one is is pretty common and usually you know just um goes away on its own okay i want i'm so fascinated i had never heard of the infantile acne what is that yeah, so that's just um the it's a, like a later peak um and it can be it really can look like really bad teenage acne. Um and um I don't think it, I've ever seen that. Yeah. It's not that common, yeah, but sometimes you see it, but What um, do you do yeah. for that? Mostly, mostly nothing. I mean, sometimes, um, you know, the doctors will prescribe uh, antifungals or steroids mm. for those sorts types of, you know, acnes, but usually not and much. Let it pass. Yeah, yeah. What about the peeling skin that newborns get? Yeah, sure. So they, okay, so they're in amniotic fluid for, you know, nine months. And in order to, for them, for their skin to be protected from that amniotic fluid, which has a lot of stuff in it, um, babies have a vernix, right? That thick coating on their skin. And so once they're born, that vernix is now suddenly gone. And that fresh baby skin that has never seen anything in, you know, the world or in utero is exposed to air for the first time. And so it gets dry and it often it peels off and it can peel and crack. Um, usually you, there's really nothing to do about it. Um, but I usually do say if it um, is getting really dry, like it really cracked and bleeding, most commonly at the creases of like the wrists and maybe the ankles is where you would see that. Um, then again, you could put like an emollient on it to just moisten it. Um, and um, and then it'll, you know, that it'll peel off that first layer of skin and um, it'll, you know, over time get, you know, thicker and less less baby soft. <laughs> yeah. I remember doing a lot of infant massage with my kids and slathering. We did a lot of shea butter all over them. Yeah, yeah. I loved that. So yeah, now, what about the, my poor children, my hairy children? Um, I know someday <laughs> they're going to hear this and my daughter, especially is going to be <laughs> mortified because she, her back is still kind of hairy. So um, <laughs> what about they, some of them come out with lots of hair, not just on their head, but like, yeah, yeah. On their shoulders. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
So this is called Lanugo and it's, it's actually protective and it is there to hold that vernix onto the skin. Um, so it's, a, it's there for a, a good purpose and it keeps that vernix on. Um, and then, um, it usually goes away with time. So that's why you'll see like preterm babies have more of that Lanugo than full term babies, but still full term babies can have it. Um, and it's usually gone, you know, after the first three or four months. Um, um, but you know, some people can hang on to it a little longer. But but usually it fades by then. All right, parents. So if your baby comes out rather hairy, <laughs> yeah. it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so there, I know there's so many weird things that, that babies can do that yeah. are totally normal. Do you have maybe three more that you that I didn't ask about that you're like, okay, let's just make sure everyone knows about? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So hiccups, I think, is a big one. Mm. Um, you know, parents are always asking about that. And I like to say, you know, that you might have even noticed or remember that your baby hiccuped in your belly, yeah. you know? And yeah. I found so, it <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so they do, we don't know exactly why they do it. You know, there's different theories, like an immature neurological access or an irritation of the diaphragm, you know? Um, but either way, it gets better with time and they usually don't bother the baby. They, it usually is more bothersome to the parents than the baby. Um, but, um, but they, they just go away. So okay. that's, that's the one big one. Um, another one that is, um, really common is congestion and sneezing in the nose, right? So, um, all of this amniotic fluid and uh, everything from birth, um, is, it gets into their nasal passages and their noses are so small, right? And so their nasal passages are so small and narrow. So it just kind of gets stuck in there and um, uh, other lint and debris and breast milk and all different things, they can get stuck in there. And so uh, that causes them to be a little congested sometimes. And it also triggers a sneeze because that's your body's natural, normal reaction when stuff is in there is to sneeze it out, you know? Um, so congestion and sneezing in babies are very normal. There's nothing to do about it. I usually say with congestion, if it is interfering, with feeding or sleeping, um, then sure, you can go ahead and get, do a little saline drops in the nose or, you know, use one of those snot suckers to get it out. Um, and, um, uh, but if it's not interfering with anything, then, then it's fine. And, and it's not, they always, parents always ask, you know, if the baby has a cold and if it's just the congestion, the sneezing, then, you know, usually the answer is no. If the baby has a cough or, you know, anything else that's going on, like a traditional cold, that's all, that's different. But with the congestion and sneezing isolated, it's really common. All right. Let's talk about that snot sucker for a second because I yeah. never was able to stump. And I know like people do it all the time and I know it's a great brand that has it, but I could never bring myself to sucking the <laughs> snot out. So I don't even know what we did. What is it okay to just like, when do you say, let's get the snot sucker out? And when do you just kind of let the nose be a little runny? Yeah. For the most part, it's fine to just let it be. You know, if it's, if there's so much stuff stuck in there, um, you know, that when they're trying to feed, right? Because if their nose, babies can breathe through their noses and their mouths, right? So if they're trying to feed and their mouth is clogged with what they're feeding and their nose is so clogged that they can't breathe. breathe, Right. Right. All right. Yeah. I just, I, I don't remember what we did. Yeah. My husband did it. I just could not. I'm like, Oh, I can't do yeah. it. Again, no I, know, I find it actually very rewarding to get that. That's not out with a snot sucker. <laughs> I think it's amazing, but not everyone feels that way. I totally get it. I just squirmish <laughs> again. It, I think it's a great tool and it's a great company that puts it out, but I just, I have, I have my squeamishness. All right. So, all right. So hiccups. You could just do saline too. If anybody feels like that, you could just do those baby, they sell baby saline drops, you know, or uh little, uh you know, saline drops for the nose and you could put 
put a few drops of that in and that with time will just loosen it up and then it'll either, you know, go back up or down and it'll come out. It'll go somewhere. Yeah. All right. So that's so, okay. Hiccups and snot. Do you have one more yeah. that you want to yeah, share? Yeah, sure. Oftentimes too, the baby's hands and feet are a little bluer, a little colder mm. than the rest of the body. Parents always worry about that, but, um, but it's pretty normal for them. There's less blood flow there. Their skin is, you know, really thin and it should go away, um, when you warm it up and it does get better with age, you know, so just the hands and feet being a little bluer, colder, it's not an indication that your baby's necessarily cold or there's anything wrong. You know, the chest, if you, you feel the chest, that's a better indicator of if your baby's too hot or cold. If the chest is, is cold or if the chest is really sweaty, that's more of an indicator of um, your baby. And then with being blue, I mean, of course, if their lips are blue, that's a whole different thing. But just the hands and the feet, um, that is very normal. Should you put socks on the feet if you're seeing cold blue feet? You can, yeah, you, cause you certainly can, cause if, especially if the feet are, you know, exposed and they're a little, you know, bluer and, and, and colder, you can certainly do that. Yeah. These are, and it warm them up. These yeah. are so great. Now, so here are things, so we just went over things that are, that might look scary, but are totally normal, which is so good. But what are some signs that someone can say, whoa, this really seems overwhelming? When should someone call the doctor? Yeah, sure. So first off, of course, never hesitate, especially in the beginning, you know, when, um, babies are, um, you know, we, they don't, they can't tell us that they don't feel well or they can't, you know, express themselves at all. So it's really, it is often little subtle, you know, things. And if you're concerned, you know, I would definitely call the doctor. Certain things we always talk about are, you know, a, t- a fever, right? So, a rectal temperature of 100.4 above um, in the newborn period um, is a fever. That's a reason to call your doctor. You don't have to go checking your baby's temperature though, by any means, um, unless you feel like something is off or wrong or the baby, you know, feels warm, you know, um, and you would unclothe them, let them acclimate to room temperature for, you know, a few minutes and then take that temperature and call if there is a fever, um, you know, blood in the stool, um, vomit, like real vomit, like projectile vomit, um, you know, is up. definitely reason. Not spit up, right, right. Not spit up that dribbles out. It'll, the spit up always looks like a lot more volume than it actually is. But if it's something that's like shooting out across the room, like really vomit, or especially if it's, you know, happening um, a lot where it's not just, you know, spit up, but then it's like shooting out, that would be reason to call. Um, working hard to breathe. You know, we talked about that looking at the ribs and um, and, and the stomach. Um, if your baby's really lethargic too, you know, they are very sleepy in the first two weeks, but you should still be able to feed your baby, you know, every few few hours. And if you really can't get your baby up um, to feed um, more than a few hours, you would want to give a call, you know, um, to, to your pediatrician. These are really, really good signs. Okay. We're going to take one more break. When we come back, you've given so many tips, such great advice, but if there's one more thing that you have kind of stuck in your head for new and expectant parents, I'd love that. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 
Okay, so what is the final piece of information? What wonderful tip do you have? Yeah, I would say that just remember that everything is a phase. You know, the babies, oh, they so change. Good. Yeah, they change so fast, you know, and so whatever it is, for better or worse, you know, it will pass quickly. So if you savor it, enjoy it, if it's those baby snuggles and the smell, you know, um, but when you're not enjoying it, that's okay. You're not going to enjoy it 100% of the time, you know, and that's okay too. And just know it will pass. <laughs> I think I really, I really appreciate that you said that you don't have to enjoy it because I, a hundred percent of the time, because I think for many, there's this expectation that, oh, I just had this baby. I should be so happy. Look at everyone else so happy. And it, it's such a huge transition and responsibility and so much unknown mm-hmm. that I remember one of my mm-hmm. friends called me. She's like, I made a big mistake. This was just a really big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, let's just give it a beat. But it, it yeah. can feel that way. It can feel like this is just so overwhelming. So thank you for normalizing that sometimes it doesn't feel so great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where can people find your work? And especially, again, I love that you're an IBCLC. So are you going to be doing that along with your pediatrics? Like, are you, how are you intertwining those? Yeah, I'm doing it for my, for my patients. So, um, and, uh, um, any, like patients of our practice, um, we do lactation consults with the mom, um, if they need it, which a lot of them do. Um, and I started doing it during COVID because, um, it's been something I had been thinking about for a while and I was going to wait till I um, got the actual certification. And um, during COVID, of course, when, you know, we never shut our doors, but there were a lot of moms with um, without the help that they need. So we started doing it um, at then. It's been good. It's been really good. And so yeah. where on the Upper West Side are you? How can people find you? Yeah, sure. So I am at a, a practice uh, called Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine. Um, we are on um, uh, West End Avenue between 78th and 79th. Um, and you can find me on um, my website is tracymd.com, T-R-A-C-E-Y-M-D.com. And I have my practice website link up there as well as my YouTube channel. And on Instagram and Facebook, I'm at babydocmama. Um, you can find me there. And um yeah. And I can even share with you if you want for your listeners, I have this uh checklist, this prenatal checklist that this will, ten page checklist. Yeah, that's like a ten page checklist. <laughs> yeah, it's basically like a guide for that fourth trimester for new moms. And um yeah, I'm happy to share that too. I will put that in the show notes. Oh my gosh, you gave Yay. such great information and stuff again kind of out of the ordinary that I'm sure new parents are seeing and freaking out about. So thank you for normalizing so much of this very unabnormal time that one's just trying to get their bearings. So thank you for everything you're doing. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I love talking about this stuff. (laughs) Absolutely. Be well. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.